0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is sponsored by a listener. Lirifua Shalema of Tzvi Ben Myshe. And remember, first sponsorships, you can email me um, any type of sponsorship you want for an episode. And tonight is in honor of the yard site of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musser movement. So, first of all, don't forget to go to the Wayus Farm Sale to pick up your Musser's farm, you know, in honor of Rabbi Yisrael's yard site. and... Uh, why you had a, a scion of the um, Muster movement, Rabbi Yaakov Maisha lesson at as a mashgiach for many years from Slabatka. So I'm sure they're selling loads of Muster's farm at this farm sale. So head up to the heights and grab everything you can get. It's the last few days before it's over. Um I actually remember when I was in the Mir Yeshiva as a Bachar, so Rabbi Yamin Finkel, known as Rabbi Yamin Hatzadik. So he would give uh, a weekly uh, V'ad, a weekly uh, Musr talk, and um, he always gave one on the yard side of Rabbi Salanter, and he always pointed out how it's interesting how Rabbi Salanter's yard site always uh, falls out on the week of Parshas Mishpatim, which uh, discusses the nitty-gritty of daily life and interactions between people and how to get along socially with uh, with others and the correct mode of behavior. all the B'anadam uh mitzvahs are in the week of Parshas Mishpatim, and Rabbi Salanter, who lived his life with the Musra movement, and that emphasis died on that week. So that was something interesting that he pointed out. So we talk about um, not Rabbi Salanter per se, but something I noticed um, recently, when, the, overall, there's so many angles of the Musra movement throughout its uh, generations and there's definitely lots and lots to talk about and perhaps uh, over the next uh, some time we'll touch and tap on uh, some other topics related to the Muslim movement or Biswasalantar specifically who was a fascinating personality but what I wanted to talk a little bit about tonight is so, sort of a kind of a different angle about the fact how it's very interesting how so many figures who were great excuse me, um, leaders of Moser, or Shol himself and his followers and, and, and through the generations, till the war and even afterwards, um, were big travelers. There's a lot of traveling going on in the Moser movement. You know, these people were not rabbis of communities for the most part. Some of them were, we'll get to that also. And, uh, and they also very often were not tied down to a specific yeshiva although some of them were also, which we'll get to. They definitely were not Hasidish Rebbes who were in a specific court somewhere. And therefore it lent itself to a certain preaching and going about and bringing about the ideas of Musa to other people. They had a mission or a crusade even to a certain extent to bring the ethical ideals that Erbistrol Lipkin of Salant who was not actually from Salant, he was from jagger but he married a girl from Salant and lived there for a while, so that's why he's called Rabisrol Salanter. And he, and the idea is that he, he uh, brought and emphasized uh, to to the rest of the, to their areas, to their communities. So we'll start with um, Rabisrol himself. Like I said, he starts off, you know, grows, grows up in jagger and then in Lithuania, and then he uh, he lives in Salant, he gets uh, he gets into the whole Musser thing there. He's exposed to a base of Zundel of Salant, which is all story. And in eighteen forty he ends up in Vilna. Vilna, which was the major city of the Russian you know, major Jewish community of the Russian Empire. They called it the Yerushalayim Delita, the Yerushalayim of Lithuania. And there he begins to to um really start what, what he wanted to become a movement and the main movement was really Rabbi Stroll himself that he moved around a lot because it never really became a mass movement. It was, I would say, um, as far as numbers are concerned, it wasn't that, that successful of a movement. It never reached critical mass. And if you compare it to the other movements of its age, Hasidus or even the Yeshiva movement or later on the Beis Yaakov movement or different, you know, movements of nationalism or socialism, uh, the Muslim movement never really had that many adherents, but that's also a whole story. But Rabbi Israel had a lot of a lot of movement, and uh, while he's in Vilna, he you know he was you know became in the positions of leadership. He was a brilliant man. He gave his Rosh Shiva there in in um, in uh, in zarecha and he he was looked up to. It was a, a big Talmud Chacham. And uh, there was a cholera epidemic that broke out while he was in Vilna. And uh, famously, he, in order to prevent the spread of the epidemic, he, uh, announced from one of the shuls in Vilna that everyone should eat on that Yom Kippur as a preventative measure. It's an incredible story that's become quite famous. And it's become so famous. There's, there's about 27 different versions of it. And what exactly happened? Did he tell that to sick people? Did he say that everyone should? Was it preventative? Was it only people who are sick already and dying? Did he himself eat? Did he make kiddish? If he ate, what did he eat? Did he eat in front of everyone? Did he eat later? Did he eat cake? Did he just drink? Did he make kiddish? Did he do a whole a whole slew of testimonies and contradictions? But definitely something, and definitely it was controversial, and people were upset at him. And uh, but that's you know he also has to remember he was in his thirties at the time, late thirties, almost forty, about about at the time, and he. Um, eventually, um, had to leave Vilna, uh, not because of, there was a rumor that it was because of it, actually that Yom Kippur thing that it was so controversial and people were upset at him that he had to leave, it. it was not because of that. It was because there was pressure on him to, uh, participate in the new rabbinical seminary that the, uh, Russian government had encouraged the opening of and that the maskilim in Vilna were involved with. And the whole, um, the whole story of the forced tuskala from, the russian government which is a fascinating uh episode in the story of russian jewish history which is also related to our velozhen series for those who are following that one but the the enlightenment was for a period of time in the, in in russia was uh, was kind of encouraged or forced or coerced by the government itself not 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 even not, not didn't come from the didn't come only from the Jews who were masculine, but actually from the the um, Sergey Uvarov. But uh, we'll we'll discuss that also at another opportunity. That's actually in the context of the Muslim movement. It's also important because Rishon kind of one of his motivations for pushing the muster movement was because of this trend of forced uh, enlightenment from the government. And which he himself experienced by him as having almost to be a part of the new rabbinical seminary in Vilna. There's another one opened in Jitomir. And he leaves the Kovna. In Kovna, he really begins in earnest to push the Muster movement. And he opens a base on Muster there. So now he's in Kovna in Lithuania, which is actually closer to his hometown of Salant. He's moving west and he only remains in Kovna for about eight years. And then all of a sudden, in 1857, after he was really making a big to do in Kovna about Musser and building a base on Musser, and he had Talmudim and he had a yeshiva there. He was a yeshiva in the Navyazer Klois in Kovna. And he um, and all of a sudden he picks up and leaves. And for the next twenty six years of his life, till he died, basically, he did not live inside Lithuania. He left to the west. He lived in different cities in Germany, in Memel, which is right on the border of Lithuania. Today it's Klaipeda. It's inside Lithuania. And he lived for a long time in Königsberg, which is today Kaliningrad, which is Russia, of of all places, controls that area, even though it's not exactly in mainland Russia. But then it was part of Germany, Königsberg, and he lived in Berlin. And he even went towards the end of his life, he lived for two years in Paris, where there was a, a community of uh Russian Jewish emigres who had ended up in France. So he really ends stays in Western Europe and he comes back again. He's traveling all the time. He's uh he comes back to Lithuania quite often for extended visits, mainly to Vilna and Kovna, or mainly even to Kovna. And he and he's involved in all kinds of um communal work, not just spreading the Muslim movement. He once explained why he moved to Western Europe um, for the rest of his life. And he said, because if the horses are charging down a mountain cliff, then you can't stop them in the middle of the mountain. It's impossible to stop them. They have too much momentum. When they crash at the bottom of the cliff, you can try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again and and try to work on it. So Western Europe is already at the bottom of the cliff. And then I have what to work with. In Lithuania, and the Russian Empire... The Jews, the Jewish communities are in the process of going down full speed and there's no way to stop them. That's one version. He there's also in all kinds of theories about what, you know, what, what, what he was thinking, what he was going through and his constant travels really are something curious about it. You know, how he just picked up suddenly um, from Lithuania, his home, and only came back for visits afterwards. And um, stays involved all the time through his Talmudin, through everything else that he was doing. He was involved in the publication of a very interesting work called *Cheshbin Hanefesh*, which he felt was a fantastic mussar sefer, and he felt it would enhance the movement. Interestingly enough, this sefer *Cheshbin Hanefesh* was written by a well-known maskil named Mendel Luffin, and Mendel Luffin based his work on the ideas of Benjamin Franklin in the United States. So you have the, a philosophy, a, a theories of Benjamin Franklin written in English. They're translated into Hebrew and written as a safer by a maskil named Mendeleffen. And Rabbi Sol Solantar says, Hey, this is a fantastic safer for work in Musr. So he publishes it. So he goes in and it becomes a favorite safer in the Musr yeshivas afterwards. And Slabotka was used Right up till the war, Rabbi Isaac shared the Rashidun published it, republished it again, just a couple of years before the war broke out, and it remains a part of the canon. In the post-war era, it somehow fell into dis- disuse, but, um, but that's another thing that we saw Sonder was involved with at that time. Now, he, he, when he's in Berlin, he um he meets up with Rosh Hashanah Hirsch. and he wanted to meet up with him because he felt that Rosh Hashanah Hirsch had his he was, a, he was successful in creating this neo-orthodoxy movement that met the challenges of modern times in a sophisticated way by accepting the modern world and still not uh, compromising one iota of his orthodoxy, and Rabbi Sol Solanter admired that. So he wanted to meet with him. He met with him and he asked Rabushamshana Fol Hirsch advice about how to implement different programs in Eastern Europe, back in Lithuania. How can we how can we inspire in modern times with all the challenges of modernity and enlightenment? How can we inspire the youth and the young? How can we emulate what you did in Germany? And uh, one of the things uh Rabusal pointed out was the dearth of good literature. In the vernacular, in Yiddish, in Russian, in whatever language it was, for the youth to read, and he said, "In Germany, you seem to have uh, been successful at at having relevant literature to read, to learn, to study from. Um, what can you suggest? And perhaps we can have it translated, but uh, for us in Eastern Europe." So Shmuel Hirsch, although he had himself written many svarim, in his great modesty, he says to him, "Oh." One of the great writers around here is Solomon Plesser. He wrote quite a few uh, interesting works. And um, and one of the people who had attended the meeting, who had actually made the shidduch between the two of them and had arranged the meeting, I forget his name, uh, he says, um, what about of Hirsch's 19 letters? Or Chayrev? why don't you recommend that? Why don't you, your, your own sfarim. And it's okay. If uh, people will enjoy my Svarma, if they'll get something out of it, then, uh, then that's great. That's wonderful. So, I mean, Rousseau Sonder was lucky that Rousseau Savall Hirsch was in Berlin. Berlin is the other side of Germany from where Rousseau Savall Hirsch lived in Frankfurt, but he was in Berlin because he was lobbying the government to, for his Austritt campaign, which is also a whole story of separating the Orthodox Jewish communities from the Reform Controlled Jewish communities, so he was in Berlin, the capital, to lobby the government. So because he was in Berlin, Rishon Salante was in Berlin, so they're able to meet. And Rishon Salante then taught himself German to be able to read the 19 letters. He taught himself German just to be able to read Rishon LeZion's farm, which were written in German. And Rishon Salante eventually keeps on traveling. He leaves, like I said, he was in Paris, and then towards the end of his life, he moves back from Paris. And he dies in Königsberg. And this great man, one of the greatest leaders of his generation, dies basically alone with one other person in a boarding house. And he spends his last minutes on earth comforting this attendant that was uh, together with him in the boarding house that you shouldn't be scared to be in a room with a dead man. And that really says a lot about Rizual Salanter. Like everything he gave over and his traveling and going back and forth everywhere and he ends up dying alone, far away from his people, from his hometown, from his Lithuania. And what is he doing? He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of the person with him, and he's comforting him and assuring him that there's nothing scary about being in a room with a dead person. This legacy of traveling continues into the next generation. Uh, the primary students of Rabbi Sol Solante were three very famous people. Rabbi Israel Petterberger, who is Rabitzalah Blazer, Reb Naftali Amsterdam, and the altar of Kelm, Ribsim Chazisl? Rabitzalah Peterberger. Rub had encouraged him to take up a rabbinical position. So he leaves his beloved Kovna and he goes to the gets one of the most coveted positions in the entire world at the time. And as far as rabbinical positions are concerned, he's the becomes the rabbi of the Jewish community in St. Petersburg, the capital of the Russian Empire, which is an extremely wealthy community. And uh, you know was in a position of influence also when Rishol actually asked him to keep an eye out for his son. Rishol had a a son who had didn't exactly go in Rishol's way. We'll say it like that. His name was Lipman Lipkin, and he was a, a child prodigy. He was a genius, and he was one of the rare Jews who got accepted into the Saint in a university in Saint Petersburg. He was a math genius, and he was. Um you know, I think he even got a teaching position, which was incredibly rare in the Russian Empire for a Jew to get a posi- position of teaching in an academic institution, but he was not that close to the path of Yiddishkeit. And, and Rabbi Solzhenitsyn asked his his student, Rabbi Solzheimer, while he's in St. Petersburg with the rich and famous and less religious Jews of the Russian Empire, which was the basis of the Jewish community there, was outside the Pale of Settlements. He had to have a special license to live in uh, St. Petersburg, um, and uh, in fact, uh, and and sorry, and he and he um, and he asked him to keep an eye out for his son. But after a while, he le- leaves St. Petersburg. He keeps the nickname though. He's always known as Rebbezla Peterburger, and he comes back to Kovna. When he's in Kovna, he doesn't take an official position anywhere. He helps out with Slabatka, and he runs the base HaMussar, and he's giving chizik to people, and he's, he's around. He's around for quite a bit of time. His wife owned a store, which he helped out in, and he eventually, in the end of his life, he moves to Eretz Yisrael. So he continues on. An interesting, uh, a side note to that is, is where the, where the Bale Musr, or Reftali Amsterdam, did a similar thing at the end of his life. They moved to, Ar-Zisra, they moved to a place called Chutzer Strauss. Today it's in the Musrara neighborhood, not far from Mir on the way to the Kaisel. Um, unmarked the buildings, uh, there should be a nice plaque there. This is where the great Bale Musr, Ritzel Ablazer, Rab, of Tully Amsterdam, some family members of the Altar of Kelm, his brother and nephews, others lived there. Um, some of the f- from members of the Frank family eventually lived there, uh, of Kovna, who was the original Frank brothers were Talmidim of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and one of them moved to uh Shagraf Frank's brother moved to Chadera. They had invested in land in Chadera. They were one of the original investors, Rabbi Shumat HaEbstein, who was married to a member of the Frank family, even lived in Chadeir in the early years, but some members of the family eventually moved to Yushalayim and also lived in Chatzor Strauss. So Chatzor Strauss, which was donated by a German Jew named Shmuel Strauss, who supported the Bali muster, was close to the Altar of Kelm, and was a big supporter of the Balei Musr. So um, he, he built, he bought this property and he built it, and the Bali Musser, who ended up in Eretz Yisrael, members of the Musr movement, usually lived in Strauss. So Strauss. There's a historic landmark in Jerusalem that's quite often overlooked, and I don't know how many people take tours of the Musra neighborhood, but definitely should be on our list. So, the reason, one of the reasons I like all these Musr travels and why it's such a great subject is because, you know, you think that traveling is for people who are in the tour guide business or people who are bored and just want to run around. So you see all the traveling we do, Kovna to Vilna, to here to there, we're really following in the footsteps of the Balei Musr. And all the places we go to on our trips is actually going in their footsteps. So we're on the right path um, to follow in the path of Rabbi Shalantar and his Talmidim from Naftali, Amsterdam. Also starts off in Kovna. And he becomes also a community rabbi in a far-flung city of the Russian Empire, Helsinki, Finland. Finland, which is Scandinavia, is part of the Russian Empire, which is another way to understand the Winter War. I want to figure out why in the world after the Molotov on Ribbentrop Pact in 1939 is signed, and all of a sudden the Soviet Union, Stalin declares war on Finland, or Finland declares war on Russia, whatever, whatever, whatever whoever, you know, whatever, you have to ask them, who, who declared war on whom, but the Winter War that's fought in 1940, When, uh, and, and why, why are they going to war with Finland? And to understand the historical context, during the time of the Russian Empire, the Tsars controlled Finland. It was part of Russia. And therefore, it was a fight over territory that was once part of Russia. And that's, uh, and and vice versa. Finland was trying to get back territory that was now owned by Russia. Um, that's when the foreign minister Molotov, When he was accused of firing artillery into Finland during the Winter War of nineteen forty, the Russo Finnish War it was called. So he said we're sending in we're sending in food. We're not sending artillery. We're not shooting rockets into into Finland. We're sending food. It's human care packages. So the Finnish people who are suffering from these explosions and in the war, they said, I guess he's sending us cocktails. So they started nicknaming the shells that were falling Molotov cocktails, which is where the name comes from uh, till today. But that's getting off topic. So let's get back to Rav Amsterdam. And he is in Helsinki. And he actually also comes back to Kovna and then heads to Eretz The altar of Kelm is the most stable of the three, but even he does some traveling. His yeshiva in Kelm it gets closed after a period of time and he moves further north into Latvia where he opens a yeshiva for the children of rich Jews in a town called Grubin, which lasts about ten years, and then he moves back to Kalm, where he remains for the rest of his life. Moving along to the next generation of the Bali Musser, the travels don't stop. The altar of Navarda Kribbase of Yezel Horowitz is one of the great travelers of the Bali Musser. First he was a businessman in Memel and that's where he met Rabbi Yisrael he met Rabbi Tzala they encouraged him to drop his business and join the Musser movement and work. They saw the potential on him, and he could work on himself and become something big. And then he he studies Musser, he becomes a big Levit Hashem, and he goes into isolation in a forest for a while. So that's a nice traveling, an excursion into the forest. Where, where that's the whole story it became a real radical and if, you know, founded a extreme form of Muster. Again, we're not allowed to use the word extreme, but, uh, Navardic was definitely extreme. Um, so, and, and, uh, and once he does that, once he comes out of his isolation and he founds the Muster Yeshiva Navardic in 1896, they don't last the Navardic that long when World War I begins. They travel to Hummel and then to Kiev, of all places, the capital of the Ukraine. He opens the main yeshiva there. But during this whole time, from 1896, when the opened, he's opening branches all over. He's sending his Talmudim out to become travelers. And they go into towns, and they start to open yeshivas. And the Vardik becomes a movement. It becomes a mass movement. It's almost like a revolution. It's it's almost imitating the Vardik, which was... In a certain way, the most anti-modern of the muster schools, much more uh, um, bohemian almost than uh, than Kelm or Feshor sure Slabotka in the way they dressed and the way they acted, and they're very radical. But in certain ways, they adopted the revolutionary atmosphere of the modern era, and they they were always on a campaign. They're on a crusade. They're opening yeshivas. They're traveling all over the Russian Empire. It was one of the things that the altar of Novartic told Rabbi Rucham when he met him once, that I've opened 10 yeshivas in the past year. How many have you opened? All, I'm opening them all over Russia. And Ibrahim says to him, well, I'm still working on the first yeshiva that I'm in to to build people out of there. But the altar of Novartic was traveling all over. And like I said, he ended up in Kiev. That's where he dies. The altar of Novartic was such a traveler that he even traveled after he died. Because 42 years after he died, in 1962, his body was smuggled out of Kiev when the Soviets were destroying the cemetery in Kiev, and he was brought to Eretz Yisrael. So he's such a traveler that even after he died, he was able to make a trip from Ukraine to Eretz Yisrael. Slabatka is also travelers. Uh, the Slabatka Yeshiva also, as a result of World War I, they end up in first in Minsk and then in Kremenchunk in the Ukraine. They come back to Slabatka after the war. Um, the altar then, in 1924, as we discussed in other episodes, they move to Hebron. And then after the Hebron massacre, to Tirushalayim. So it's interesting, Slabatka did not move out of choice. Almost every time they moved, it was because they were forced to by the unfortunate circumstances of uh, of the world around them. First World War One, where they were on the run all the time. And then... The, uh, the decision, that was a conscious decision to move out of Lithuania and come to Israel. They were the first ones to do so. So think about it. It was a Muster Yeshiva that was the first one to travel and to make the move. So again, that says something about the Muster movement and traveling in general. Nor the Yeshiva thought of picking themselves up, even when the Lithuanian army draft came out in 1924, which was the impetus for Slobodka to move. But still, Slobodka was the only one who made the move. They traveled, they picked up, for yeshiva to go up and set up a new infrastructure in a foreign land. Definitely a major move and a major project. And unfortunately, a few years later, they had to move once again and go to uh Jerusalem after the massacre. So Slobatka is always on the move. And then, of course, everyone will tell you where the real Slobatka traveled after that. Did the real Slobatka end up in in Berlin with its representatives there? Did it end up in Baltimore? There are those who will say... And there are others who will say that no, Chafetz Chaim in America is the real Slabatka, and they're also travelers. They're opening up branches all over the United States. So there is somewhat of the legacy of traveling in Slabatka still exists. One of the unique travelers in the later Mussar movement was a great uh, Bal Mussar and great man in general, Rablaib Chasman, a fascinating individual. And he's someone who studied in Kelm he then, um, he studied in Kelm. It was ready after he was married and he owned the flour store. Flour as in flour to bake bread from wheat, not in flowers. And uh, because the Kelm philosophy was that you have to work for a living. So he spent a few hours in the store and the rest of the day in Kelm, in the yeshiva, in the Talmud Torah. And one day the altar saw that he had a flour, white stain on his sleeve. And he said, that's not the way we behave in Kelm. And Rebbe Leuchas eventually Decides that he has to leave Kelm as a result. He goes to learn in Valazin, which is not a Moser Yeshiva. He at some point comes back to Kelm. He leaves again, and then becomes the rabbi in a small town in Lithuania, which his name slips my mind. Now, he then becomes the rabbi in, them. am sorry, then he becomes the Mashgiach in the Tel's Yeshiva before Tel's even had Moser. And he's supposed to be the one to implement Moser there. He spends a few stormy years over there, and is forced to leave after a while, because Tells was not yet ready for the Muslim movement to invade. And um, and he leaves. He becomes eventually the Rav in where he starts a yeshiva, and he calls the yeshiva Knesset Yisrael. It's a branch of Slabatka. And the yeshiva eventually has a couple of hundred Talmudim. It was a big yeshiva. It closed during World War One. He ends up in Minsk. After World War One. he comes back to Kovna. And then he goes back to Stutzin and then moves, he leaves his, his, his position and moves to Chevron. The altar Slabatka convinces him to move with the yeshiva. In 1926, he picks up and moves to Eretz He's in Chevron and then moves with them to Yushalayim where he's the Mashgiach of the Slabatka yeshiva after the altar had passed away until he dies in 1936. So he spent his life really traveling from place to place. He was never in any position for too long. Rabbi Rucham Levavis, of the mirror, we discussed an entire episode, quite back, way, way back, about his travels. He also spent quite a bit of time of traveling and I'll end off with two short stories about um, Bali Musser in the post-war era and their travels. One time, Rev Desler, Balei Lezer Desler, one of the last greats of Kelm, he was in the United States and he was visiting his son, Rav Nacham Velvel Desler in Cleveland. And, um, Rum Nachem was the founder of the, uh, of the, uh, the academy, the day school there. And he was showing it to his father. And he's amazing. It's very impressive. At that time, there's almost no day schools outside of New York. And he really was able to set up a whole thing there. And, uh, he was telling his father how he was able to do it. And he mentioned that Rablazer Silver, the famous rabbi from Cincinnati, one of the greatest rabbis in the United States at the time, had helped him set it up. So he said, Did we ever properly thank him? And he said, The truth is I should really properly thank him more. So of Destro says, let's go and thank him. So they took a train to Cincinnati. You now to get a train from Cleveland to Cincinnati at that time with the train schedules and everything, it was quite a bit of a train ride. So they arrive in Cincinnati and Laser Silver, who was a man of the old school, he was a Tomorrow Khaimiser Grogensky, he never studied in any of the Mussar yeshivas. He didn't get the whole Mussar movement. He was really Lithuanian, old school, nothing to do with all the the new ideas of of Mussar. So he, but he meets Rav Dessler and his son, and he says, "Oh, welcome. What can I do for you? What brings you to town?" So Rav Dessler says, "My son told me how much you helped him set up his day school. We came to thank you." He says, "Okay, fine, but but why'd you come to town?" He says, no, no, we came to thank you. So he goes, oh. he assumes that they're not really telling him the reason. Come, sit down, settle down. Where are you staying? Stay overnight. The next train is only tomorrow morning to get back to Cleveland. Da-da-da-da. Yada, yada, yada. The next morning he meets him again in Shul. By after davening, he goes over to him with silver and says, so let me ask something. So why'd you come out to Cincinnati? Sir Dustler says to him, the media of thanking someone, of recognizing the debt that we owe you. We, we, we wanted to thank you for what you helped us with the, with the day school in Cleveland. So Reblazer Silver says, and now you're going on the train, you're going back to Cleveland? That's all you came for? He says, yeah. So Reblazer Silver mutters under his breath, wow, this must be some sort of Musr thing. So that's one story. The last story is this I heard from an eyewitness uh was in Rubchatskal Levenstein. In his later years was the Mashgiach and Ponovich And in his last years he wanted to strengthen Musr, which uh you know kind of disappeared the whole Musr movement um in the post-war era, which is also a story for itself and a pretty interesting one at that. And he wanted to be machazik, he wanted to strengthen the study of Musr. So he would travel, and this is his, his, tra- his his travels was not very far, it was going around the different yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael, very often carrying a pile of musr sefarim with him, which he would then leave in the base medrash of each yeshiva, on the main bima, in the center of the base medrash, and ask and give a shmuz. He would ask the Rashiva, can I give a shmuz here? And he would talk about the importance of the study of musr. This is what Rav was doing in his late 80s, and he did it in quite a few yeshivas, he felt this was his duty, this was his obligation. So I heard this from an eyewitness. He came to Brisk, which did not study Musar. And he asked uh, Rabbi Yashu Rabbi um um in Yerushalayim, if he can give a schmooze about studying Musar. And he brought a pile of Musar Sefarim with him to donate to the Beis Medjish. And he gets up to speak. And it was in the middle of the afternoon Seder of of, of studying the Beis Medjish. And he starts to speak about the importance of the study of Musser and there was and and people are listening respectfully and there's one uh one person sitting there next to his Khusa in the back, and he didn't like this but you coming in to brisk to 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 talk about Musser this is in i think late sixties early seventies, if I'm not mistaken and uh um, maybe mid sixties I don't remember I have to check the exact date and uh and um and he continues to learn with his friend in a very loud voice to try to drown out Rabchatskil. Uh, you know, he keeps on going on with his Harusah, the Gemara, so that because he can't speak about Musar and, and brisk, it's not the right place. And Chatskel at one point lost, uh, lost control, you know, he burst out at him. He, he started yelling at him and he said, I'm old enough to be your grandfather and I'm speaking and you don't have the decency to allow me to speak. He said, you see what happens when you don't have Mussar. Look, you don't have the minimal derecheretz, the minimal decency to allow an elderly man like myself to speak. That's what happens when you don't learn Mussar. So that's a little bit about the travels and the movements of members of the Mussar movement, the sojourns. This was Yudi Gebru with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and tours and trips to places of Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.